Luke chapter 6, starting from verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is God's word. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for reading. Uh, hi, good evening. Uh, my name is Matt. Uh, if we've not met, uh, as uh, Phil said, senior uh, pastor minister here, and uh, be good to meet you at some point uh, if we've not met. As Phil mentioned earlier, then um, we take a break from normal routine as it is. So we've been working our way through a book of the Bible this term, the book of Galatians. That's kind of normal service for us here. But just for two Sundays, doing something a bit different. Um, working backwards, if you will, if normally we'll look at the Bible, see what it says, and apply it to our lives. Uh, the next couple of weeks, we're taking a question from life and going back to the Bible with it, just slightly turning things on their heads, just for two weeks. Uh, I don't, hope that doesn't throw you uh, if you're here as a regular too, too much. Let me pray. Let me lead us as uh, we pray, and um, we'll spend a little bit of time then thinking about this question of, does religion ruin everything? Let's pray together. Our Father, to be a Christian is fantastic. Uh, Those of us who who know that to be true and are clear thinking in our minds know that it is wonderful. And following the Lord Jesus ruins nothing. It makes everything better. We may give up a few trifling pleasures for a short period of time, but what we get back is infinitely greater in this life and there's eternal life to come. It ruins nothing. 
So help us once again, or for the first time, see how following Jesus is good for us. It's good for our society. It's good for our world. And it brings honor to you. Help us see that, Father. I have feeble words, but would your word show us that that is true? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight then, uh, does religion ruin everything? We, we could just a couple of honest questions this week and next week then. Honest questions, reasonable, sort of things that people say. And um, it may not be your big thing, but I, I think I hear this relatively. And increasingly in the media, I think it was probably uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, a famous writer, I think it was 2008, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Um, was his best-selling book, and I think that sort of really fueled uh, the flame of uh, this one. But it's relentless, I think, in the media. So 10 days ago, uh, headline in the Times, their first comment, quote, headline, zealots of all faiths are drowning out the sane voices of secularism, was the headline. Zealots of all faiths are drowning out the sane voices of secularism. Well, that's a slightly loaded title, you might uh, think. So there's uh, Janice Times, and of course Christians get lumped in with everyone else. Or one book that's made a bit of a splash, it may have passed you by, you may not be interested in such things, but um, that's uh, caused a bit of a splash in the last couple of months. Uh, Catherine Nixie, she is uh, a columnist for the Times, um, no, she's an a arts writer for the Times, so not a professional historian, but uh, writes on contemporary arts. But anyway, she's written a history book, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Oh dear. And uh, if you read the book, um, the thesis is that in the 4th and 5th centuries AD, uh, what was glorious, classical civilization, the Greeks and then the Romans building upon it, and Christians ruined everything. They just ruined it. And they dumbed down on art and on mathematics and on science, and they stopped anyone cracking any jokes. There were no jokes for 200 years. Um, uh, and it's, it's slightly, oh, it's clearly a, a pretty aggressive polemic. Now, I haven't read the book yet. Um, uh, I wanted to last week on holiday, but I read a novel instead, sorry. Um, but uh, the reviews I've read, of course, in one sense, if, if that's what you want to believe, some have read the book and said, oh, this is fantastic. I knew this was true all along. But the majority of those who have reviewed it, not Christians, uh, have said, well, it's interesting, but there's not a lot of evidence in the book. So lots of comments along the lines of, uh, from in the book, quoting the book, the Parthenon was almost certainly damaged by Christians. Almost certainly, but no evidence given. Uh, stones from the Parthenon in Greece were quite likely to have been used in building churches, but no evidence given. So if you want to take that line, I, I, I guess you'll find justification for doing so, even if you can't find evidence. The problem is for a statement such as doesn't religion or even Christianity ruin everything is it is a bit lazy. And it doesn't really engage your brain. You could say religion causes all sorts of problems in the world. You could say that is a fairly lazy statement. But you could almost replace religion with anything. Science causes all sorts of problems in the world. Climate change, well, that's science, isn't it? That's science's fault. Weapons in North Korea, possibly nuclear weapons without well, science. 
at that point you say, well, yeah, I guess there's science involved, but there are other elements as well. People, nasty people, in the case of building nuclear weapons to, to fire against others. Or, take another example, capitalism causes all sorts of problems in the world. Well, again, that's a slightly lazy statement. You could argue that. Look, Grenfell Tower, capitalism. There you go. That's what happens with capitalism. Or um, NHS waiting lists. It's capitalism. They say, well, um, probably things are a little more complicated than that. Just to blame uh, on a blanket issue, say it is to blame religion, business, capitalism, (coughs) science. It's about as facile as this. Try this one. Hats. Hats are to blame for all the problems in the world. And I'm sorry if you're wearing a hat, but you mustn't. Because hats ruin everything. So let me, let me prove my thesis. Let, 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 here we've got a, a picture of some hat wearers. And uh, look. <laughs> Mao Zedong. There we go. Stalin, Hitler, Robert Mugabe. They all wore hats. If they hadn't worn hats, the world would be fine. Hats ruin everything. And at that point, you might say, well, um, no, I'm not sure it's as simple as that. That's a slightly superficial analysis of the issue. In fact, the hats might be just irrelevant. Uh, or maybe there is something about being a dictator that feels, you, you know, you've, you know, I don't know. Religion ruins everything. You can't. That's just such a lazy statement. But the problem is people start to believe it. You get a book like the Catherine Nixie that Christianity has ruined civilization in the past. And she ends up saying, so when you look at the 4th and 5th century, Christianity then is basically the same as IS today. And all religions are awful. And religion ruins everything. Well, even if you've got no evidence, you just keep saying that enough and people start to think, yeah, 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 there's, there's probably something to that. But even if we get back our hat wearers, even the most superficial glance, you could look at some of our hat wearers and say, let's leave Mugabe out of it. But a, conser- a conservative estimate would say that Mao and uh, Stalin and Hitler are probably responsible for around 100 million deaths in the last century. Note all of them would have described themselves as atheists and certainly not in any sense religious. So look, if you want to play the superficial game of, of lazy name-blaming... We can do that, but it doesn't really work. Anyway, enough. I have very little interest in defending religion as such, but the modern attack upon Christianity, suggesting what Christians in the past, they're just no different to IS in the world today, no, that won't do. Now, I'd quite like to demonstrate that to you historically uh, and look at actually how science and in particular medicine flourished in those centuries because of the Christians and without the Christians medical knowledge would have drifted away but you know you could argue the toss on that one or I could just tell you that and you you have to sort of do your research to to find out if I'm speaking the truth or not it is true but let's just spend a a little bit of time looking at Jesus's religion and I think that's probably more useful to us we're going to look at Jesus' religion. And just at this one little section of Luke's Gospel, I'd love you to take away a Luke's Gospel and to read it. But just this one little section of Luke's Gospel. In no sense are we going to do a detailed uh, sort of uh, out, uh, unpacking of the verses as we would do normally. I just want to draw some of the headlines from here. But we're jumping in here then to a section where, where Jesus is preaching. It's a sermon. 
and some elements of it you'll possibly know, probably know. They're quite familiar, this sermon on the plain, uh, as it's known here in Luke. Look, and I just want to make three points, really, about Jesus' religion. Is it good for the world? It certainly is. Three things. Love your enemies, he says. Sort out your plank and be merciful like your dad. All right? Those three. Love your enemies, sort out your plank, be merciful like your dad. Those three. Let's take them in turn then. Uh, first, which is really verses 27 to, um, to 36. Love your enemies. You get a command in verses 27 and 28. Let me read those. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. Love your enemies is the sort of overall command. And then you get some specific examples. Verse 29, three of them. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. So here's Jesus' religion. It's love your enemies. Now, for those of us who are Christians already, I don't want to put a limit, in one sense, on what Jesus is actually asking of Christians to do here. But you need to bear in mind somewhat that he's preaching for effect. So when he says, take the plank out of your eye, I don't observe anyone actually wandering around with planks in their eyes. He's making a point for impact. So here, if someone... Well, let's give a look at a couple of examples. The, uh, the slapping of the cheek... Uh, Verse 29, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other also. Well, culturally in the first century, to take your right hand and slap it across the back of someone's cheek, that is about as insulting culturally as you can get. It's sort of equivalent to, in the 21st century, going up to someone and spitting in their face. Jesus is saying, don't retaliate, is his point. Absorb humiliating insults is his point. You can speak. You see him, for example, in John 18, Jesus gets slapped around the face. He says, why are you doing that? But he doesn't seek to retaliate. That's his point. Don't retaliate. Or the, the, the taking of the coat. Um, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. What does that mean? If, if you find yourself in a dark alleyway on the way home and someone says, give us your phone and give us your wallet, and they start running off, you're obliged to say, look, before you go, take my shoes and, and take... Mm, he's not saying that. that. That would be eccentric, I think. His point seems to be, look, if someone borrows your coat and doesn't give it back, don't refuse to lend to them again. Just give people a second chance. Verse 30, be be generous, don't keep accounts, is his point. Love your enemies, give people more than they deserve. Or as he stresses the overall thrust of verses 32 to 34, love people unlike you. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Very good, well done. Now look, love people unlike you, says Jesus. Anyone can love someone who's like them. It's not hard. We call them PLUs. They're people like us. I quite like PLUs. I go on this holiday, just be full of PLUs. Um, that's quite easy. People who are different 
is harder. Now, this is a fairly radical comment for us in the 21st century. Love your enemies. Love those very different to you. At the start of the month, uh, beginning of October, a little bit of fuss. Uh, in one interview, the Archbishop of Canterbury commented that he thought that uh, we'd become a much more compassionate society. And this caused, uh, he, he's caused a little bit of a boo, a mild boo, not a big stink, but a mild one where everyone's saying, are you serious, mate? Do you ever get out of your palace? Do you ever leave your palace? How can you say we're a more compassionate society? Observe, going on at the same time, observe the Tory party conference where... BBC journalist Laura Koonsberg needs a bodyguard because people are so lovely and compassionate. Or walk outside the conference hall and see two effigies suspended in tuxedos and a sign above them saying, kill all Tory scum. Observe how compassionate we are as a society. Or observe Diane Abbott getting thousands of tweets calling her to be murdered, killed, worse. Observe. I mean, this is just my comment. These are just the, the sort of, as I observed the, uh, the reaction to his interview, left wing, right wing saying, <laughs> you are joking, aren't you? More compassionate? Whereas Jesus says, love your enemies. Oh, well, there's a radical thought. Is that going to be good for the world? rather than just associating just with people like you and lobbing bombs at the other side? You'd have thought so. (laughs) Love your enemies. The motive or the power, the force, comes in verses 35 and 36. Here's how you can love your enemies. Verse 35. Love your enemies, do good to them. Lend, uh, Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, because God, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We'll come back to verse 36. But God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Well, Jesus would say that's you and me. All of us are naturally unkind and self-absorbed. Naturally, we're, we declare ourselves enemies of God. It may be in a very mild way. It may be voluble. You may campaign and say, I hate God. But even in a very mild way, we just say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Don't want you. I'll run life my own way. We're all naturally ungrateful. And the essence of the Christian faith is that God comes down in Jesus Christ and dies for his enemies. He doesn't just lob bombs at us. He doesn't say, well, if you're going to be ungrateful, I'll retaliate against you. He comes down and gives himself for people like you and me. Love your enemies, says Jesus. That's how I treat people. That's how God in human flesh lives. And if you know him, well, you want to live that way too. Briefly, two quick complaints or, or, or obvious rejoinders that people make. Uh, one is this. Look, Jesus is nice. I get that. I read that Jesus is nice. But um, the Old Testament is awful. And the Old Testament encourages rape and polygamy and murder. And it does not. I mean, it's a history book, mostly. And it does not. It records all those things. 
it records God's people, the Israelites, doing those things and says they're judged for them. It doesn't condone them. So just yeah, be careful on that as a, as a complaint. Or um, I guess more commonly, the second sort of objection people often make, look, horrific things have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. And often it's the Spanish Inquisition. And it's the Crusades. Or I'm afraid to say you can look around the world today and I think possibly the worst is uh, in Uganda, the Lord's Resistance Army, led by Joseph Kony. Brutal, utterly brutal. But the point is, if you read Luke chapter 6, you have to say, if the name of Jesus Christ is used to justify religious violence, then people are not obeying him, but disobeying him. You do see that, don't you, when he says, love your enemies. If the name of Jesus Christ is used to justify religious violence, people are not obeying him. They're disobeying him. And those sort of classic examples, they're political power grabs. Joseph Coney is a, is a dictator. It's a, it's a cult. No doubt about that. If you look into any, any sort of most superficial level, the Spanish Inquisition was a sort of nation-state building exercise. They're not, none of them are really following. None of them could ever pretend to be really following the teaching of Jesus Christ. He says, love your enemies. That's a radical level of love. So look, here's the first thing that Jesus' religion is, looks like. He says, love your enemies. Let's, uh, let's have another. Um, verses uh, 37 to 42. Sort out your plank. Sort out your plank. Um, verse 37. Do not judge, and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Don't judge. In the sense of don't be judgmental. He doesn't mean you're not allowed to make judgments. That would be silly if I asked you the question, who's the better footballer? Is it me or is it Lionel Messi? Your response would not be, well, Jesus says don't judge, so I wouldn't like to offer an opinion. No, feel free to say, even at your best, you were poor and uh, he's one of the greatest. It's fine. It's judgmentalism, obviously, he's talking about here. Don't do that. Verses 39 to 40, the point there is don't expect people who are clueless about real faith in Jesus to be able to guide you. And then verse 41, perhaps an over-familiar picture. Verse 41, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Perhaps over-familiar, we can look at someone and think, oh, you know, you've got a bloodshot eye or, or something. Your eye's a little red. Meanwhile, there's a glaring, glaring issue with us. I guess Jesus' point, of course, is that we can focus upon and exaggerate the faults of others while minimizing our own. We look at others and exaggerate. So when someone else, uh, someone tells a lie, and if they've uh, upset us, they're a liar. And we tell a lie, and we just tell a little white lie. So we apply a different standard to them and to ourselves. Someone doesn't turn up when we've agreed to meet, and they are utterly unreliable. Whereas if we don't, that it's, well, we were just busy. 
And we apply different standards to them and to us. And we caricature. Verse 42, I guess, is even worse because it's not just in our heads, it's out loud. So perhaps verse 41 could be in your own head, but verse 42 is out loud. How can you say to your brother or sister, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Friend, can I let you know, I I wonder if you have a problem with materialism. I just, I've been online and I see that your shirt costs 200 pounds, your trousers 500 pounds and your shoes 1,000 pounds. Can I just point out to you, I, I wonder if you've got a problem with materialism. Um, well, you could do that. Because Jesus' point is, the hypocrisy there, I think, is that we're pretending to help. But actually, it's just enabling us to not sort out our own issues. We focus on the small issue in someone else's life. So we don't have to engage with the fact that we've got a big problem. Now this is utterly normal human nature. To make ourselves feel good, we need others to be bad. Now there's a very common phenomenon um, in um, uh, sociology or psychology, I guess, better than average syndrome, uh, you'd have come across it, or illusory superiority, to give it its sort of posh name, but uh, I like better than average syndrome. And uh, you can go and look up any research that's been done in this area. It is unbelievably coherent and consistent. So I looked through uh, a couple of more recent uh, studies done. One was a, a poll, YouGov, and one was research done in um, Goldsmiths University. This is extraordinary. of the UK population think that they have a better than average IQ. Do the maths. Or math if you're American. The um, 98% think they're above the top, they're in the top half. So at least 48% have got that wrong. The amazing thing about illusory superiority is it doesn't matter what the question is, the stat is almost identical. So 98% of the UK population think they are in the top half for IQ. 98% of the UK population think they're in the top half for niceness. Isn't it amazing? Almost identical think they're amazing. The number drops a little bit. 93% of drivers think that they're in the top 50% for drivers. There's a little bit more self-awareness there when it comes to motoring. But in terms of just sheer physical appearance, again, you're back to 96% think that they have above average looks. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? And it's not just one bit of research. You can look across in the Western world. Can I just say that? It's not true anywhere. It's only the West. If you go to Asia, they just do not get the same results at all. It's Westerners, and look, just mild confession, because while we're on the subject, men are worse than women Um, at this, just statistically, although you, by the time you got to 98%, the differences are not that great. But isn't that amazing? How can you maintain the fiction that you're in the top half, in the top 98, you know, that you're in the top half of niceness in the UK? I mean, I don't want to be too odd about it, but according to that research, half of you in this room think you are much nicer than you really are. 
you are less pleasant than you realize. Do you, half of you, or maybe not, maybe this room is the, maybe this room is the top 50%, who can tell? <laughs> but isn't it amazing that that stat is so consistent across different questions? How can it be? Because what we do is, we find fault with others to make ourselves feel good. And if we could say, look at, look at their specs. Look at the specs in their eye. Oh, I bet they can't see a thing. Look at how, whatever it may be, look at how irritable they are. Look at how unreliable they are. Look at how angry they get. I'm much better than them. That's how we do it. But at least half of the population are completely out of kilter. And Jesus is saying, it's just rank hypocrisy. This sort of illusory superiority, this is better than average syndrome. We sustain it by looking down on others. And Jesus says, sort out your plank. Look at yourself. Before you criticize anyone else, because you you can always find someone worse than you. If you can't find someone who's less nice than you, golly, life is pretty bad. You can always find someone worse than you. But Jesus says, sort out your own plank. Address your own issues. I am not saying that Christians get this right all the time. I am saying that if you follow Jesus' teaching consistently, then you will be more concerned with addressing the problems, the selfishness, the issues in your own life than finding fault with others. You'll want to do that. Because the Christian is one who says, amazing grace, how sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you sung that this evening? Extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? I was a wretch. In fact, in many ways, I still am. And here I am as a Christian. I recognize that I'm ungrateful before God. I recognize I'm a wretch in how I treat other people. But I know that still, even when I lived like that, God loved me. And even though now I still live like that sometimes, God loves me. And so here I am, the Christian, knowing that I am deeply flawed and ungrateful and wanting to find fault in others to make myself feel good. I know I'm like that, but I know I'm loved by God. And so I can say to you, look, I have flaws. Will you gently, gently, will you gently come and point out my flaws? This is not an open invitation. I only ask my friends that. And the Christian can do that because they know that they're flawed. They don't pretend to be nice. They know they're ungrateful, a wretch before God, but still loved by him. And so it's worth an enormous amount to him. That's how you can sort out your own plank if you're willing to admit you have a problem before the Lord. You're not particularly nice. You are flaws. You're a wretch. And you need God's help. Love your enemies. Sort out your own plank. Last thing, be merciful like your dad. Let's go back to um, uh, verse 36. In one sense, here's the, the, the power, the engine that can drive this sort of behavior. Be merciful Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. 
And whether you're, you're a Christian for years or not, you do know that those are not just inspiring words, but that's how Jesus Christ lived. So you read on in, in, in the account, Luke's account of Jesus' life, and you get to chapter 22, and uh, Jesus is, is arrested by armed guards, and his followers pick up their swords and start swinging them around, and he says, put your swords down. And the man who's attacked him but has lost his ear. Jesus heals his enemy. He doesn't just say, love your enemies. He does it. Uh, And then as he goes and dies upon a cross, he can say, Father, forgive them. Even as he's being killed, he can say, Father, forgive them. Here's a man who lived out utterly what he taught. He loved his enemies by dying for them. And actually, naturally, we're the ungrateful. We're the enemies of God that he died for. And he says, look, if you know God's mercy in Jesus Christ in your own life, and if you've accepted that, well, that will transform you so you can live this way, so you can be kind, you can be merciful. Here's Jesus' religion. I think it's very wonderful. People do get confused. A few months ago, um, the historian Tom Holland uh, wrote an interesting piece uh, in the New Statesman. It was titled, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. Now, you may or may not come across Tom Holland. He's quite a well-known historian. Uh, I like history. I've read History University. Uh, I've read all of his books. And so when he writes, oh, you were wrong about Christianity. That's interesting. Because he writes about classical history. He's written a very good book about Caesar, Rubicon, uh, Persian fire, about Leonidas and the Spartans. Uh, um, so he's, he's, that's his niche. You know, that he's well respected as an ancient historian. But you know, why were you wrong about um, Christianity? He wrote about uh, how he grew up, and he grew up in a sort of vaguely religious, e Christian y family, but no one had real belief. But then, uh, as, as a sort of young child and into a teenager, he was a bit of a history nerd, no such thing. History people are cool. But um, uh, he liked history uh, more than his peers, let's put it in those terms. And he started reading. And uh, he said, I, I swallowed this myth that was just in the culture. The classical civilization was wonderful. And then Christianity came along in the 4th and 5th centuries and ruined it. it just ruined it. It became, made everything sort of superstitious. And all this wonderful education was dumbed down and ridiculous. He said, that's how I grew up. And, and that's how I went through university. And that's how I started. But then I started doing further research in ancient history and thought, it's not all great. So he said, I started thinking, the values of Leonidas and the Spartans, well, they followed a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics. You know, you kill the weakest, you know, make people strong. Those were not my own values. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million ghouls and enslaved a million more. He said, it wasn't just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of sense that the poor or weak might have any intrinsic value. I realized that which I cherished comes from Christianity. You see what he's saying? The idea that you look after the weak rather than just kill them. 
well, just kill them. That's an ancient civilization approach. All are equal. Men, slave, man, woman. Are you? That's what Christianity brought to the known world. He clearly knows enough biblical sense to, uh, to write this. I'll give you have got this one, this last quote of his. We preach Christ crucified, St. Paul declared, unto the Greeks, foolishness. So there's, he's quoting from uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified unto the Greeks' foolishness. This is the reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies take for granted that it's nobler to suffer than inflict suffering. It's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and my ethics, I've learned to accept I am not Greek or Roman at all, but I'm thoroughly and proudly Christian. He's not, one, he's not saying oh, he's a Christian believer who trusts Jesus for, for, for his eternity. I'm not, he's not saying that. He is saying these values, all human lives are equal. You don't just crush the weakest, you look after them. As a professional historian who specialises in ancient history, I'm telling you, that comes from Christianity and nowhere else in the West. Isn't that striking? Let me give you one final example, then we finish. Those who follow Jesus properly live this out as well. Let me give you the example of uh, uh, communist Romania. I've visited Romania a few times, and uh, you can still see uh, many of the atrocities committed under the communist regime of, uh, of Ceausescu. Yeah, here's one example. The, uh, the Christian pastor, who's a man called John Stănescu, who was arrested under the uh, Ceausescu regime for preaching. And he preached in his church uh, and was arrested and uh, was taken to uh, a prison, a prison run by a man named Colonel Alban. Uh, but John Stonescu wouldn't give up, so uh, they, well, here I am, I'm, I'm in prison, I'll just preach to all the prisoners who aren't Christians. You a Christian? No. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. And he starts shouting through his bars, and so this drove the, uh, the, the, the commandant, the, the prison uh, uh, captain, Colonel Alban, absolutely crazy. He stormed in with a number of guards, had Stonescu uh, stripped. Will you stop preaching? No! Do you know about Jesus? No, I don't want to know. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he said, whip him, kill him, beat him. At that moment, uh, the colonel was summoned back to his office. Some others had come uh, from higher up the, uh, the chain in Bucharest to come and visit him. He said, I'll get back to you later. Um, and it, the problem was, as often happened culturally, Colonel Alban had been denounced as uh, a counter-revolutionary. Um, someone higher in the ranks wanted to sort out a grudge with him. And so an hour later, he found himself back in the cell with John Stonescu and about 20 others. Well, the 20 others thought, well, this is interesting. The man who's put us in prison and held us captive and treated us badly now appears to be in a cell. And they had a very brief discussion and piled in on him. And John Stonescu wrapped himself around Colonel Alban and wouldn't let him go. And so every kick... Every thump, every beat, he took himself. And so the colonel, after a while, they all gave up. After a while, the colonel asked him, where do you get the power to do this, to live this way? And he said, I follow Jesus Christ. 
I follow the God who loves his enemies. And I'm seeking to do the same for you. Beware of any faith or culture without a cross. Do you see what he's saying? At the heart of the Christian faith is the message of God himself coming down and dying upon a cross for people like you and me, all of us, who naturally declare enmity. He said that's at the heart of the Christian faith and it's not just a wonderful truth to say that Jesus died to pay for all that I've done wrong so I can live in heaven forever. It's not just a wonderful truth. It's a pattern that Christians seek to follow. So beware of a faith, a, a religious system that doesn't have a cross. That's Jesus' religion. Love your enemies. Sort out your plank. Ultimately, be merciful like your dad. And if you know that, well, you can live that way. But isn't that wonderful? Is that a religion that ruins anything? No. It is a religion that's transformed the world because at its heart is a God who loves his enemies. That's wonderful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the truth which utterly has transformed this world. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him, for God himself coming and walking on this planet, teaching us, but supremely coming to die in the place of the ungrateful, the wicked like us. Thank you that that means we can be utterly transformed, we can be forgiven and have a future with you. And Father, thank you for the power that has to transform individual lives and how that has transformed cultures throughout the centuries. So Father, we thank you for the legacy, even in our own country, of the, the work of Christians, the influence that Jesus' message has had upon our culture. We don't want to lose it. But Father, above all, we want to be those who trust him and so personally can live this way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.